Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode two of Wake Up Call. We have been overwhelmed with the response that you guys have given our first episode and our mini show and the stuff that we're seeing on social media. We're receiving a lot of nice comments from everyone. And we just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for that. We work very hard on the show and it means a lot to see that you're uh, appreciating it. Another key person that we need to thank that we forgot to last time, but is key to the functioning of Wake Up Call is Toon Kaiser, who designed our beautiful logo. He worked very, very hard on that, and I saw him work hard. He's my roommate in college, um, and he did a great job, and he deserves a massive shout out. Yeah, so with that out of the way, I can introduce you to the topic of today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about inflation and examine the key role that global supply chains and globalization play in inflation. We're also going to take a look at the different type of impact that inflation has on various uh, groups in society. And we're going to look at different options to tackle inflation. So I don't know how about you, but every time I drive in a gas station, I feel depressed um, the past few months. So Vishva, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, of course. It's been the it's been the same here. Um, inflation has really been felt in our wallets. It's some it's one of those economic events that we can actually feel every day. We're going to the grocery store, suddenly everything is much more expensive. We fill up our gas. I normally used to pay like fifty Canadian dollars for gas. I went to the gas station yesterday to fill up my car, and it was like ninety six dollars. That's it's almost double in price. Um, what I habitually pay. Um, so it, it really is crazy, especially in the energy sector. Uh, the latest CPI numbers, which measure year-by-year -year inflation, released in Canada in the last year, are, is 7.2% in the past year, which means that on average, items are 7.2% more expensive than they were just one year ago. Um, of course, this number is an average, and there are sectors, such as gas, where energy price has just gone crazy. Um, and there are sectors where it hasn't gone crazy. There's more data for that that I'll, I'll talk about later. Um, America's CPI number was just released again um, for the year starting in May 2021, ending in May 22. It was 8.6%. Uh, and just for fun, Vilda, uh, I took a look at Lithuania's CPI, and it is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. It's a whopping 20.5% over the past year. Yeah, and the that, wages are not getting bigger at all. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I guess a lot of that has to do with the proximity to Russia. I mean, you're going to talk about that later. But the Eurozone CPI is also not quite as high as Lithuania. It's 8.2%, but it's very, very large. Just, just for reference... Banks normally look to target 2 to 3% as an inflation goal um, year by year. So these are massive increases, which we have not seen in a long, long time. So as I alluded to earlier, these numbers are just averages. And there are areas where inflation has gone way higher than others. Um, so I could find data only from America, but this is um, from the Department of Labor. American energy costs is are up 35% as opposed to the average of 8% or whatever. So food is also up 10.1%, again, higher than average. 
while all other items barring food and energy is only up 6%, uh, which is still high, but much lower than the two essentials that you need to live day to day. Um, and just pouring through the data, I couldn't find quantitative data for this, but it seems like the same trends are happening in Lithuania and Europe at large. So what this is, is a disproportionate increase in the price of essential items, such as the cost to heat your home, to drive your car. America is a very car dependent society. You just don't have the existing public transportation infrastructure to keep up with it. This is why it's such a problem. People simply cannot afford to pay these sorts of prices for the basic necessities, especially lower income people. Um, so what most economists agree on is that the principal cause of this inflation is the failure of global uh, supply chains to properly recover from the shock of the COVID uh, pandemic. This leads to less resources, increased cost of production, and you know those two things eventually lead to higher burden of cost on the consumer. So I can talk, there's basically two reasons for this supply chain crunch. Number one is that is that COVID related disruption. And the second is the war in Ukraine. Milda, do you want to talk about how Russia's war in Ukraine affects uh, global supply chains, inflation, and, and you talked about the global south earlier. Um, and then I can come back to the COVID related disruptions. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the war is the most relevant uh, topic today, so I can definitely expand more on that. Of course, I'm no analyst, so I'll, I'll only like kind of give uh, my own take from what I found. And also, of course, I'll touch on the global south because I can literally talk about the global south and like feminism in every episode. I don't care. And you'll see me do it <laughs> every time. So, OK, a couple of main things. First of all, Russia banned its exports of grain and wheat except for Belarus, of course. But this is not like the huge impact because uh, I feel like Russia is more influential with their oil and I'll talk about that a bit later. And the second thing that happened is that basically Ukraine, like the breadbasket of Europe and like the whole world, its trade ports uh, and, and trade routes are disrupted. For example, the Azov Sea ports of Mariupol and Berdyansk are now under Russian control. Um, of course, Putin said that it's up to Ukraine to demine these ports and basically export their products, but the whole situation is a bit more complex than it seems. So I'll give you a bit of a backstory why this is such a huge deal. Um, basically, Ukraine has the reputation to be Europe's breadbasket because even in the Soviet Union, um, it exported, uh, I'm sorry, not exported, but accounted for <laughs> more than 25% of the whole Soviet Union's agricultural output. Right now, it exports about 10% of the world's wheat, 14% of corn, 17% of barley, and like 51% half, you know, of the world's sunflower seeds oil. Uh, so basically, with these ports shattered, very small amounts of these kind of products wind their way westward by rail through Romania and Poland before even being shipped out in the first place, right? And an added aggravation and an added hurdle to all of this is that basically the wheels on the wagons have to be changed at the border because like unlike European rails, Ukrainian train cars still run on the like Soviet era kind of tracks. 
So of course, this makes the whole process of exporting this thing and getting the money and the financial gains out of it to actually be able to fight Russia uh, is just becoming a very prolonged process. And also what makes the situation even more complicated is that there are severe droughts in other parts of the world, for example, in the United States and in Canada, which really affects their kind of spring wheat output. Also, there are record-breaking rains in China that have damaged or delayed planting or more than like 18 million acres of land, which also, of course, really, really affects the way that they can produce their wheat and export it. So to sum up, what kind of effect does this have on like food security and food prices? So, of course, all of this crisis that we have is expected by the news and by analysts to extend even to next year. And of course, at the same time, Russia's dominant role is also in production of fertilizers and the shortage of grains for used for feeding livestock. So as basically the war is continuing, farmers, especially more disadvantaged farmers, cannot get these fertilizers and cannot produce what they need to live on. And of course, the most kind of prevalent impact is that food prices will remain elevated for months to come, which also feeds into the whole inflation thing that you were talking about. And the effect is felt all across the globe, of course, mostly in in areas that are poor, uh, such as the global south. And uh, yeah, but uh, another point very quickly about oil, because also Russia plays a huge part in it. Uh, Russia's whole economy depends on exporting oil. It's where they're the strongest and where there is most wealth. So of course, this is what kind of feeds the war for them. So what many countries in Europe especially have done now is that they banned importing Russian oil in order to fight the war. So that is also why it is so expensive for us to get gas right now, because there's a shortage of it. And countries in the middle of Europe, such as Germany, they're looking for alternative ways to get energy. I think they're really looking into Africa and building certain gas, uh, gas some kind of gas trades and, and routes there to get energy from there and to heat their homes, which of course... Uh, is going to happen, but it's also a, a key hurdle in fighting climate change, this whole war thing, because we cannot get as much green energy on the way because we prioritize just heating our homes. So yeah, that's that's my take. Um, and I, maybe you can expand more on COVID now. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to just piggyback off that Germany point, I think it's I think the Germans really shot themselves in the foot here um, because if you look at it, in the past few years, they have shut down like a whole bunch of their country's nuclear reactors because for whatever reason, people view nuclear as dirty energy. Just the word nuclear scares some people, I guess. Despite it being a very safe, very effective, and like incredibly powerful form of energy, incredibly scalable form of energy. And now if you look at it with Russia cutting off their pipelines and things like that, they're back to burning coal which I don't think the environmentalists like that very much. So I think really environmentalism shot itself in the foot there. I mean, I think that environmentalists should look to nuclear as an option. Sorry, that was just, yeah, no, that was just a side note. Sure. I'm very, I'm very, uh, I'm very pro-nuclear. 
Yeah, um, we can have a debate on nuclear energy, I think, in, in future episodes. But I also want to call Germany out for being total hypocrites. Oh, my God, I hate them so much. Like, they call themselves... <laughs> to be promoters of like environmentalism and also promoters of, you know, democracy. But then they had absolutely, they had so many years to switch to other energy sources like Lithuania did because we knew the danger of Russia and they still didn't That's, do it, right? Because they- Yeah, know, exactly. Yeah, so just complete hypocrites. <laughs> I feel like you guys realized that Russia wasn't all that much changed, whereas the Germans thought that they were basically, you know, bit the Russian propaganda, or at least Russian money was just too lucrative for them. Okay, I digress. Let's talk about supply chains again. Um, I'm actually very interested in this stuff because I uh, study economics. Um, most economists agree that the principal cause of this inflation is due to the failure of the global supply chains to recover from the shock of the COVID restrictions, COVID pandemic as a whole. Um, I, I read a great article in the Council of uh, Foreign Relations um, and Craig Austin's article in The Conversations, um, they basically explain this phenomenon of supply chain related inflation extremely clearly. So I wanna touch on some key points from that article. It goes like this. Essentially, as vaccines became widely available in the West and countries started to open up, there was a sudden increase in demand after a year of demand being incredibly low. Countries' economies were restarting, people were getting back to work, um, tourism was starting and naturally as people started to get their jobs back, they started to spend more money because they had money again. Supply chains are now extremely globalized and often do not start in the West. Um, and the countries that are not in the West, such as those, as Milda mentioned, in the global South and uh, other poorer nations were still very much in the thick of the pandemic with a lot of people dying, restrictions still being in place, lack of access to vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. So this sudden increase in demand was basically inconsistent with the way that the economy works. People in the West wanted a whole bunch of more stuff, but the people that were actually supplying it literally had no way of meeting up that demand. Suppliers generally keep very little inventory um, such as like reserves to, to like keep up for um, sudden increase in demand because, you know, that's a way for them to cut costs. But the consequence of keeping very little inventory means that they're often unable to meet sudden surges in demand at all. So what this sudden surge in demand did is it led to a massive overflow of goods flowing to ports. This means that the cost of things like shipping containers, storage, all of that went up and things just continued to be sluggish. These ports were not fully staffed yet. Again, people were still in the pandemic and there just started to be massive, massive shipping backlogs that were just unable to be cleared. I think this is quite analogous to the surgery backlogs that we're seeing as a result of the COVID pandemic. When hospitals, I know in Canada, I'm not sure about Lithuania or the rest of the world, but hospitals in Canada began to cancel a lot of elective surgeries and, and things like cancer screening procedures because they could not keep up with um, the, the, the toll of the COVID pandemic. But what's happening now is that they're unable to clear that backlog. It's going to take years and years and years for those effects uh, to wear off. And similarly, economists believe that it's going to take years and years and years for this supply chain backlog to ever clear up. 
This is why even with the world starting to emerge from the pandemic, I would say that in the West, we are firmly post-pandemic right now. The supply chain issues um, that started in the pandemic continue to cripple our economy and lead to a massive increase in crisis. Of course, this was the state of the world before the invasion of Ukraine, which just made everything so much worse. Yeah, you actually you actually reminded me of something. Um, you talked about like uh, after COVID when the demand was so high and they couldn't meet with the supply. You actually reminded me that also during the war, uh, war like right now when fuel and energy prices rise, uh, also the prices of regular products rise because they need more transport, you know, they need more refrigeration and all of that costs more money because energy costs more. So essentially exactly. even the products of like, just like general products such as bread, I don't know, milk, it all costs more uh, for people all around the world. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you need ships, trucks, planes and stuff to transport all those things. And what do those things run on? They run on fuel, which is now, like you said, astronomically high. Um, that's, a, that's an excellent um, point there. I do quickly want to address the, the demand side of the equation, which a lot of people, especially conservatives, like to bring up as the cause for inflation. Um, basically, the, like the, 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 the thesis goes like this. Look, during the pandemic, governments printed a whole bunch of money. This led to a massive increase in the money supply, which led to people having more money, which led to more demand. I'm not convinced that this argument holds a lot of water. I do believe that demand-side economic uh, shocks, such as the stimulus checks and, and uh, insurance and employment insurance and things like that, I'm sure they did have somewhat of a role to play. But I think that that is really, really overstated um, by conservative politicians. I think that first and foremost, it was necessary for governments who decided to shut down their entire economy and put a whole bunch of people out of a job to at least provide some basic necessities and, and provide a way for their citizens to make those ends meet. In 2020, a lot of us forget this, but we were actually in danger of falling into an economic crisis not seen since the Great Depression because of how low demand was. And they just needed a way to increase it, even if it was somewhat inflationary. Um, basically, if people don't spend their money, even more people lose their jobs. And then people are have less money to spend, more people lose their jobs. It leads to basically uh, depressions. So it was extremely necessary to print money to avoid that. Um, so I, I don't think that that role of the demand side equation is a big problem. That being said, I don't think that governments are completely off the hook for this because their previous spending policies uh, also did contribute to inflationary outcomes by increasing the money supply. But I would say that this is more of a critique of their pre-pandemic policies rather than their pandemic policies. What people don't talk about, and this is the reason I don't think that a lot of the demand side critiques of inflation, um, such as being like solely because of government spending, this is why I don't think... Um, that they're generally done in good faith. Because um, like one of my favorite commentators, Crystal Ball mentioned, central banks bailed out massive Wall Street banks and, and, and trading firms and things like that. Like they gave them billions of dollars in cash to avoid a complete stock market crash. 
So the fact that we don't talk about the billions handed out to big banks and the, and the bonds bought up by the central bank, the fact that people don't talk about that leads me to believe that a lot of these critiques are just basically done in in in, in bad faith, essentially. But like, what do you um, think about that? Because I think this really shows the priority of the government. You know, they prioritize the elite and the, the big companies who bring them money, but not really regular citizens, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one way of putting it. That being said, if the stock market crashes, it's not just the big banks that lose money. It's all the people that bank with them. We saw that in 2008 when banks went under. If you put your money in that bank, you put your savings and things like that, you just lost all of that. So I, I, I do think that there is some weight that governments did prioritize elite institutions and, and fi the financial sector and the health of that over the ordinary citizen and giving them the basic necessities. But I think we have to remember that the two are inextricably linked to each other. Financial institutions play a role in all of our lives. And yeah, the people that run them are the rich and elite, but the people that use them are often not. Um, so like, what can but, governments then do to, to tackle inflation and help regular citizens? Yeah, I think that this is an extremely... Um, extremely difficult topic actually Milda because there is there is really nothing that they can do about the supply chain I mean there's a lot of like there's a lot of demand side stuff that they can do and they're they're already doing to just sort of cool down demand they're increasing central banks have increased um, interest rates making it harder for people to take out loans leading to you know less money supply and in, in the economy less people spending a whole bunch and you know, it's smarter for them to save if the interest rates um, are higher. Another way that I feel like a lot of governments will go is austerity by massive cuts. I think this would be really tough and I'm not convinced that this is a good idea. And, and the third is obviously just fixing supply chain issues, but that is going to take a long time. This is things like, you know, bringing back manufacturing of critical infrastructure, building circular economies, expanding ports, um, creating surge capacity, more shipping containers, bigger ships. Like, this is a lot of stuff that can't happen right now. Um, I do think it's, I do think that governments are in a very tough role here. Um, but I do think that um, there are some things that can be done, especially in the longer term. But could you also like explain to me a bit more about the investors? Um, because like, you know, the, the elite individual investors, the like Wall Street guy type people who yeah. invest a lot in stocks and stuff like that and like get a lot of returns from it. But like that doesn't actually contribute to the economy, does it? Like I feel like why can they then escape taxes and, and get all of these privileges? Um, but the regular people who do run the whole economy, I feel like are kind of left behind. Yeah, I I mean I don't I don't think that's right that they're that they're getting bailed out. I think that the the dangerous thing is when when really risky decisions come with bailouts, which is what happened in 2008 where they were making a whole bunch of risky investments that they knew were bad investments. Um and basically just counted on the Federal Reserve Bank to to bail them out. But the thing that a lot of people forget is regular people invest in the stock market. If they don't invest directly, if they're not like traders or whatnot, 
a lot of their like pension plans, a lot of their, um, you know, retirement plans and a lot of their uh, longer term investments are tied in with funds that basically make stock investments to grow their portfolio. Um, and even to an extent, like let's say you put all your savings in a bank, what the bank does with that money is it invests it using its hedge funds and, and things like that. Um, so I think that when we when we talk about bailing out like these elite institutions instead of the ordinary citizen, like I don't think that it's it's a choice of of one or the other necessarily. I think because the ordinary citizen is so tied with these institutions like banks, trading firms, uh, the stock market, and things like that, you can't really do one without doing the other. That being said, I do think that there is a disproportionate letting off the hook of these wealthy bankers and less and more reluctance to give support. This is this is this is the bizarre thing because I feel like people are much more reluctant to oppose let's say giving $1000 each to every American, which is not a lot, um to every American to combat the COVID recession, but they're not as opposed to um, giving bankers massive bailouts because they value the whatever stability of the economy and things like that. Really, I personally don't. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 bizarre. I, I at least in in politics, there seems to be a lot more resistance to the idea of giving people money. They call it handouts. They call it whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think, but this is like more of a cultural thing that especially more people on the right kind of associate handouts with like, oh, you're, you don't work, you are just a burden to society, you should go to hell, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is, um, it's, it's weird how our mind works. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I think that's just like years of propaganda by the government. Um, but that's just my opinion. But I think we can talk more <laughs> about that with our guest. <laughs> Okay, so um, as our guest today, we have my dear friend, a fellow debater, and honestly, a person that I consider a prodigy, but um, I'll give him the opportunity to introduce himself. So welcome, Ignas Carvalhos. Hello, my name is Ignas. Uh, as Milda brilliantly put it, I am a debater. I am still a student. I am and political activists sometimes. I write some uh, articles and stuff, but generally just uh, an active youth member, if you could say so. Cool. Uh, nice to meet you, Ignis. This is my first time meeting you. Um, I guess our first question <clears throat> to kick off this section of the show is talking about how uh, globalization um, and, and the failure of global supply chains to meet um, consumer demand how do they tie in um, with the current inflation situation? How does globalization and the current inflation situation sort of go hand in hand? What's your take on that? Yeah, so like currently the general inflation that especially Western countries are experiencing is sort of like supply-driven inflation, which is uh, which mainly arises from like the rising energy prices, especially like oil and gas. And this has been uh, like incredibly problematic since a rise in those has resulted in a general price increase in everything because, well, 
gas and oil is just so tied into our economy. Like we literally drive and transport everything. And even if it's not directly included in the production of something, even though like plastic is everywhere and plastic is made from oil, uh, even if it isn't included in everything, right? Like transport is still a, a necessary part of it. And therefore due to like supply disruptions uh, due to, uh, well, for example, like the war and stuff and just generally, uh, well, since like uh, Russia was a, a large producer of oil and gas and due to the fact that uh, Western sanctions have cut off a majority of that uh, flow to Western nations, that has resulted uh, in huge increases in the global market and therefore well increases to normal people as well. Yeah, and also like I feel like modern governments push globalization as the biggest value and you know like uh, uh, the the right movement and all of that, but we were talking earlier about like the impact of globalization on the global south. Like, what do you think? Um, maybe the fact that we're so globalized and we're like so interconnected has made the global south suffer more. Like, for example, with outsourcing of companies or with foreign direct investment of the West. How do you think that played out? Yeah, I think it kind of depends. Like, firstly, it's a highly individual, like country to country basis. But generally speaking, there's firstly a huge dependence, like that both Western nations have on the global South. But uh, that's more like spread out since there's so many nations that the Western countries are dependent, and therefore it's not so individually uh, important. But for uh, for for like global South nations, it's way more pronounced insofar as they're dependent often on like one major western nation and that's kind of like uh, their only global export oh, sorry import part yeah export and import partner actually so that kind of makes a few things happen like firstly often like uh, these nations are forced into certain niche niches that are seen like acceptable like for example a lot of uh, central american nations are forced into like agricultural war or like you know banana republic and, and stuff because uh, uh, the West just needs certain agricultural products it cannot get. And that sort of entraps these nations insofar as they're unable to develop other industries because there's no technically demand for them. So they're sort of locked in, in like this agrarian society. But even in places where they aren't, they're still sort of really dependent on uh, uh, Western uh, companies because often when they come in, uh, they are like, firstly, they have huge power in the legislature, like. Uh, they are able to control governments insofar as like regulation uh, should not be passed. But also even like the land they are building, these factories and everything they have belongs to them and not to the nation. And therefore, like at any point, they can just threaten to move out and take everything they have with them. And therefore, countries generally have no control over them in the first place. So a lot of these countries um, that are dependent on one sole nation are for example, post-colonial states. If you look at like Mali, Congo, they're heavily dependent on France for a lot of their imports and exports. My question is, how do you, how do we reconcile the fact that France does owe some amount of, of reparations and, and, and debt to these countries in the form of business and trade and enterprise for their colonial wrongs, but also the fact that these reparations and this relationship that they have with these countries is continually inherently exploitative. 
Yeah, I think that's kind of uh, that kind of is the problem because there's generally this power imbalance between like the Western nations and their uh, previous colonial uh, holdings, and therefore not only that they often don't agree about the extent of the crimes committed, and therefore they're often unlikely to even give, give us those reparations in the first place. Right? He sort of frame this foreign aid and sort of foreign direct investment as some sort of reparatory principle in itself, as in so far as they assume these companies are so helpful in the first place. And they said that, oh, we don't need to do anything else, even though that's kind of uh, debatable in the first place, whether they're actually doing more good than they're doing harm. So like to, to delve more into this, does Western do Western companies and foreign direct investment actually help African countries, let's say, develop or not? Like, what's the alternative then? Hypothetically, if Africa, after freeing themselves, was less dependent on the West than it is right now, do you think that it would have been more developed? Like, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, this is like this is really hard to uh, to understand. But generally, I think that like the investment is. Uh, like a, a net good to a certain extent because it generally does help uh, nations to rise like for example we can take a look like at china at india at like vietnam currently right these nations who get this investment due to them being like more competitive uh in comparison to western nations they are able to like industrialize and rise and later on they're able to free themselves from this uh like uh, neo-colonial uh, power, like like for example, like China and like Vietnam and India are fairly bigger since they are bigger players in the market. Like uh, the U.S. or like the uh, European Union is unable to control them to the extent they're like able to control Mali. But but like to get there, it's often really difficult because the majority of nations are unable to do so, and they're often entrapped in being these like. Uh, cheap production places that generally have no control over their own industries and stuff. Yeah, um, and just to piggyback off that, if, if you look at the way that the West uh, industrialized, uh, which you alluded to, it, it, it all started with raw materials and then manufacturing and then eventually becoming service economies. Do you think that this is part of a natural progression or do you think that there is really no pathway forward? Because, for example, China and India, especially China, actually, was initially the world's manufacturing hub, still is to a great extent. But they managed to evolve past that and became a financial center um, and basically a, a developed economy, much like the economies um, of the West. Yeah, I think that, like, yeah, that sort of is a natural progression and it is definitely possible. But it kind of uh, relies on uh, that all happening. Like there needs to some often be a point at which, like uh, I believe, that the governmental control has to take over and kind of regulate uh, the power of these Western uh, companies because they are so unaccountable. And also, like generally speaking, I think that it is possible for all nations to industrialize. It's just a very complicated task insofar as uh, well. Generally, it's just uh, really difficult to uh, annihilate all of this poverty that exists in the world, and therefore it's kind of difficult to say to what extent is that possible in the first place. But like generally speaking, yeah, the manufacturing, like as it happens in nations, we see like a general increase in 
quality of life and that sort of happens globally on a place-to-place uh, -place basis generally. But yeah, I think it is effective and possible. So is it possible to put more accountability on, on Western influence and Western companies, let's say, in post-colonial states, or is it kind of a pipe dream? Yeah, I think that once again kind of relies on a point, but at, at the beginning of industrialization, it's generally impossible due to the fact that these companies are often not yet established and are really likely to move easily. But we have seen like a global trend on like South American nations, for example, like Bolivia and Colombia and et cetera, electing like more uh, leftist leaning uh, coalitions and parties, which are generally more uh, uh, more self-controlling. For example, like in Bolivia, like uh, the lithium mines were uh, nationalized in order to end the Western like uh, exploitation that was happening there. And generally, generally, like when the country reaches a certain point of stability, that's a point of which I think it can sort of cut its influences and start developing on its own. And especially with like larger other countries like uh, China and India, creating a counterweight to a Western influence, we're able to develop without them, maybe in the first place. And and what responsibility do Western governments have to regulate their own multinational corporations? Um, for example, like the reason that a lot of these countries, uh, these multinationals set up base in, in, in third world countries and developing nations is because of their lax labor laws. They have the governments in their pocket, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in, in unstable governments, uh, more than anything, do you think that the stability of Western states can be harnessed to sort of, you know, force multinational companies that operate in the West? to follow the labor laws and standards of the West, rather in no matter where they operate. Do you think that there is a role to be played there um, by Western governments? Well, firstly, yeah, I think to an extent that uh, yeah, governments in the West can sort of make an ultimatum or something and force these, uh, these companies uh, uh, to be more moral and, and et cetera. But I think that uh, that kind of questions whether they want to do that in the first place because even in even in western nations we can see how like large companies are generally able to avoid governmental oversight like with amazon and stuff and they're generally it's kind of unlikely that legislators who don't really care about their own constituents will suddenly care about like third war nation exploitation because that generally isn't their concern ever and what do you think is then the possible alternative maybe for the global south is protectionist policies something that you think is beneficial for the economies of those countries yes i think that well protectionism is generally really efficient in like uh, creating new industries because often when a country creates an industry it's like a sprouting industry and its costs and output is way lower than like that of the market and therefore, it kind of requires protectionism to shoulder this new industry from the harms of the free market. And more importantly, that's kind of how Western nations industrialized by themselves, right? It's kind of like uh, like U.S. in the beginning of the 20th century really had a lot of tariffs and like really protected its own steel industries and subsidized those. But now, like many legislators are saying, but look, like the free trade and neoliberalism really helped us in like the 80s and 90s. And therefore, if we give them that to you, you will also industrialize while fundamentally ignoring the fact that they 
don't have the base which was used uh, by the neoliberalist policies in the first place. I think something that um, me and Milda were chatting about before the show is um, before we even started recording is is how similar um, leftist um, economic policy and and the economic policy of people like Donald Trump sound rhetorically, although mechanizationally they're they're extremely different. Basically, if you look at the rise of of people like Trump, it was based on America first. We're going to build an America. We're going to manufacture American, and to an extent. Joe Biden has kept those same policies. But if you look at Bernie Sanders, he was saying pretty much the same thing. They were talking about the plight of the American working class, how protectionist policies are going to help people that have been left behind by globalization. I just, I just thought it was, it was very interesting. Um, my question to you is, do you think that there's any sort of like relationship between the two politically as a sort of populist um, new way of looking at economics and politics. Do you think that there's a political alliance that is there to be formed? Well, yeah, I sort of reject the notion of that, like the horseshoe theory that kind of says that, oh, the far right and far left are really close and like the middle is where all of the things yeah. are happening. I genuinely think like, yeah, like both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump really sound generally the same. But the problem is that Donald Trump really didn't care about the workers, right? It was only like a rhetorical tool. Like generally, like all of his policies fundamentally harmed like the American working class. And it's what uh, like propped up the corporate state even more. Whereas like the leftist policies are way more focused on fighting corporatism and actually like uh, targeting the workers directly more than, oh, if the economy grows, everyone will get a bigger share of the pie, which I think is Ronald Reagan's lies. Yeah, and I I, I think that's true to an extent. I, I find it hilarious when Trump tries to pretend to be a champion of the working class uh, and railing against the elites when the man is literally the definition of the elites. He's a billionaire that has been politically involved from the time that he became a billionaire. Yeah, like, uh, for example, like he had the tax cuts that he created that, like, literally worsened the deficit and uh, generally even harmed the working class even more. And, like, the tax cuts did almost nothing for the uh, top, uh, from the bottom 90% and generally just affected the people at the very top. But, well, he he had the support, uh, not at first due to the economic policies, but later he just transitioned to the social policies, and that's why he earned people's support after people notice that nothing really happens to them on an economical basis. And so we talked a lot about how globalization essentially hurts workers. So um, maybe you could enlighten us a bit more about, like, what does Marx say about globalization? Because we also had a debate with Vishwa about this. You could maybe educate us a bit more. Yeah, so generally, this is, like, globalization has been used by, like, current Marxists as a way of overthrowing, like, of, of a way of creating uh, the utopia, because currently, like, in the Western nations, generally the revolution is fairly unfeasible due to the fact that really powerful power structures like police and the government and, like, the military exist, which fundamentally drastically oppose the interests of the working class and even more, like, the corporate uh, money uh, acquirement in like the very top layers uh, generally disallows for any movement of like the working class and that's why often dissent is so easily silenced 
but this is what current uh, Marxists see like as a way of moving forward insofar as since all of the Western nations are hugely dependent on uh, like sovereign uh, support and especially like sovereign goods, they, they feel like inciting re a revolution in those nations is far easier due to the fact, well, uh, generally the working conditions are way more terrible, like the living quality is horrible and there's huge exploitation. And that's what's, for example, happening in like, you know, uh, Bolivia, right? And uh, like even like Venezuela and uh, uh, other uh, nations and like the global south who are way more likely to, you know, where labor movements are stronger and they're able to create these leftist governments and which later, since they cut off like the support, uh, like the supply of lithium, like to the uh, United States from like uh, Bolivia, once again, I'll overuse that example. But uh, like since they cut that support, it's fundamentally how in the long term uh, something can be achieved worldwide due to the fact that like the Western empire will crumble by its own. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the one reason that I, I generally come to the defense of, of markets is just the efficiency aspect. Um, of them in providing goods to people. Do you think that there are is a way to reconcile sort of the bad of the free market, um, labor laws, the way that workers are treated, things like that, um, at, while continuing to keep the same principles that get goods to consumers fast, effectively, and encourage innovation? I sort of genuinely dislike the like consumerism aspect at the very beginning because I don't think that the fact that I can buy and waste everything so easily is a benefit. I think that due to like just because I can throw away my shirt and buy a new one, that doesn't mean that I should do that and that I should be incentivized to do that by the free market or something. And therefore, I generally don't see that efficiency as such a good thing insofar as it really is what undermines environmentalism in the very first of places and kind of is more of a downside insofar as it like not only violates worker rights by like pushing for efficiency and uh, over exploitation but also pushes for over consumerism and over overuse of like generally all of the natural resources and stuff yeah Should um, I go ahead? yeah sure go ahead yeah, I mean, I think that, that that that's one way to put efficiency is like, you know, putting it in terms of things like fast fashion and like Amazon instant delivery. But what I really mean by efficiency is is the way that essential products, like if you go to a grocery store, even now when food prices are high, like it's hard to get supply, you always have supply. Whereas in, in former Marxist states or states that had a more controlled economy, that was not always the case. Yeah, like, okay, a few things. Firstly, like, yeah, once again, like, that efficiency point kind of underlies here because, like, in the United States, I think, like, 30% of food is wasted. Like, it's incredibly, like, horrific amounts of general, like, pro produce that is seen, like, unfit for sale or just generally wasted by the population who uses it. So I think that we kind of need to start getting there from the beginning. But even more, like, in, like, uh, the Marxist states and stuff, it's fundamentally like a lot of what we know, like for instance, like in uh, nations like uh, the Soviet Union, like in nations like uh, uh, Cuba and like China, the majority of like 
food shortages did not occur from the failure of the internal markets. They basically occur from the fact that there's no there's this huge isolation created by the Western blockades, for example, like currently like on Cuba and like North Korea and stuff. Because these nations are unable to import food from overseas, therefore they're generally unable to often feed the population to the extent they should have. Because, for example, like even in the United States, right, so much of the produce comes from other nations, and if it all suddenly was cut, it would probably also lead to shortages. But like even more, like I think that there was like a CIA report from like 1979 or something where they basically concluded that yeah, in the in the USSR, people had like in like generally the same amount of calories per day. It's just that they you, you, they generally didn't have access to things like uh, 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 like manufactured products like like canned food and stuff, and they generally used more like vegetables and like more nutritious diet according to the CA report. It was pretty hilarious, but yeah, like there was shortages of certain stuff, but not like that food was not un was unavailable in the first place. I didn't actually uh, read that about uh, the CIA report. I, I'm 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 gonna con continue just just this sort of line because I think it, it explores a lot of a lot of interesting questions. Um and, and I think that this is a conversation that's that's worth having. Um my argument essentially for the reason that there is food waste is because that the food market is too regulated and is not free enough. If you look at the US, they have massive subsidies for corn, they have massive um, mandatory minimums for things like that, uh, for farmers. These are all laws that were put in place, sort of more social safety net laws, more socialist laws that were put into place to sort of appease certain special interests and in certain groups of people um, that just basically, and you know what, they might've been necessary at some point in time to increase production, but they were never repealed. Um, so I would argue that the current U S agricultural industry that wastes so much isn't necessarily the free market. Yeah, that could be like part of the deal, but also like the problem is that the reason why these subsidies exist in the first place and like existed is because they're used more for like political capital rather than actually helping people. Because like the U.S. has no reason to actually like grow corn when like since all of the manufacturing like for steel and stuff has been outsourced to where it's more competitive. The only reason like why Kansas and stuff still grows like wheat and corn is because uh, the local like leaders need their uh, the support of the farmers and therefore they keep on giving those subsidies because they don't they want to stay in office and that's the reason why that like it's not for the people that they're actually being given but more to the fact that they just need to appease their own audience. Yeah, I mean, I'm with Ignis on the side of the debate, I feel like, <laughs> but uh, also I feel like a lot of what we know about the Soviet Union, of course, I'm not trying to glamorize it, but I think a lot of it is warped and the West, especially as Western citizens, we have been fed propaganda about like how bad that part of the world is and how we should never talk about it and how there are absolutely zero positives there, which I think is false. And I think it's a discussion that can be very broad and that we can have and that, you know, we need to really analyze to know the facts. But um, yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about it generally, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is. And, and I think the economics of it is often not extracted from the authoritarianism that was inherent to it.
I mean, like, yeah, uh, like generally, that's one of the reasons also, like going back to the globalization and industrialization things, like one of the ways that nations also industrialize, because like the U uh, USSR didn't have like H&M uh, setting up factories there, right? Like uh, one of the reasons how nations which are more rich in natural resources do it is by selling those natural resources and then buying like things like factories and machinery from Western nations and then using that to to industrialize because that's basically what the USSR did by like selling oil and minerals to the Western powers, especially like Germany and France, and then we use that to buy the machinery. And that's how they sort of later in, became like the second uh, largest economy in the world so quickly. Okay, so I just want to just like bring this discussion back to um, the the initial topic that we were talking about, which was inflation and globalization. In your view, as, as someone that is generally wary of globalization, how do you believe that a less globalized world would have dealt um, with this current COVID supply chain related inflation? Well, like, yeah, so generally like, uh, the, uh, if everything was less globalized, right, it's quite intuitive that there would have been less of a transportation issues and especially like, what happened is that once uh, China closed down, like in the uh, 2020 uh, first period and stuff, uh, a lot of Western like countries, especially like US, really suffered a lot of supply chain shortages because they were so dependent on these nations. And therefore, like if they were more protectionist in the beginning and didn't like outsource everything, we would have been less dependent on that. And that's something that happened like. Uh, after uh, Trump imposed the tariffs on like aluminium and steel in like 2016 or like, sorry, it's not 16, like 18 or 17, uh, they uh, like the internal market did like increase to an extent, right? Like uh, it did uh, increase the production internally, even though there were like numerous other problems from that, of course. Is there anything you want to add? Because to me, uh... This has been a really interesting conversation, but I think we should be wrapping up. Oh, I uh, no, sorry, sorry. No, <laughs> I generally no, Vishva. Yeah, I was asking Vishva. <laughs> oh, you're asking me? No, no. I think this is this is a, a great chat, and I think um, hopefully our listeners are gonna come away from this much more informed. Yeah. So uh, we we really want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it was great to be here. All right, everyone, it's time for the rant, where both me and Milda get a chance to rant about whatever we feel like is troubling us in the world of politics. Milda, what are you taking a look at today? Yeah, uh, okay, today I'm taking a look at being in the center. Not in the center of attention, but in the political center. Um, this is something that I'm so angry about. And like, this is something that I'm even more angry about than what I was in my last episode on like motherhood and feminism. But yeah, my aim today then is to persuade you guys that there is no centrist ideology. I know that many of our, of the people who might be watching the podcast might consider themselves centrist or even loudly and proudly say that they are centrist. Well, I hope that after today you reevaluate your views or at least contemplate on what is the center overall. 
So to start off, I want to talk about the definition of centrism, right? And I, I googled this in many different dictionaries, so I'll read a couple of definitions that I found. First of all, uh, political beliefs or policies that are at the center of the range of political opinions. Whatever the center is in this case, is it a vacuum? I'm not sure. Second of all, a person with political views that are not extreme, synonym for moderate. Okay, fair. Um, and third of all, centrism is a political outlook or position that involves acceptance and or support of a balance of social equality and a degree of social hierarchy while opposing political changes, which would result in a significant shift in society strongly to either the left or the right. Once again, when I read this definition, to me, this just symbolizes being a slave to the status quo, but I'll talk about that a bit later. So now, why do I say that the center doesn't exist and why do I say that centrist beliefs cannot exist? Well, first of all, um, I want to talk about the perceptions on like centrists and radicals in society. I feel like overall, of course, because the government has really, really villainized uh, people who are more radical with their views, the perception of radicals in society is like horrible. You know, people see radicals as some kind of mentally ill people who need to be put into an institution because they're crazy. But I think that a lot of the times this is like false. A lot of people who have very strong views about something, they only have them because they're like super educated and because they can actually argue about those views. Of course, this doesn't like apply to all instances, but I think that the, the perceptions of radicals need to change. But then what are the perceptions of centrists? I feel like for some reason, centrists are like idealized in society and glamorized to be like the smartest people in society, which is like so stupid to me because like you did not come up with these views by yourself. You did not wake up one day and have an epiphany that, okay, this is the world order and this is how it should be like and this is what I support. And now, why do I say that? When you're born into this planet, a, a random country, a random family, that is already a politically charged action. Like, you have to understand that we're all born in, like, a certain environment, a certain class, a certain race, sex, ethnicity, etc., right? So, like, we're all consciously or unconsciously involved with certain, uh, or with a certain set of beliefs, like a social position or the mere, like, activity of being a member of society is already a politically charged opinion. Whatever our family members or our friends say to us, it's really ingrained in our minds and like shapes the perceptions that we have of other people or of other parts of the world. Um, so, for example, people, the general citizen of the United States, I think, for all of their lives, they listen to pro-war propaganda. They listen to pro-military stances, pro-gun, anti-immigrant news, etc., etc. No matter what is their like environment, all the like all people in America, I feel like hear these things. So like, how can they, you know, you need a, a lot of knowledge and a lot of, a lot of political action in your life to actually step over these beliefs. So like people in America who do consider themselves centrist, I think, you know, what is a centrist then if you have all of these beliefs deeply ingrained in you? But even playing video games such as Call of Duty. Now I don't play Call of Duty, so like don't call me out on this and don't quote me on this but I do know a couple of things. Um, for example, video games that are usually produced in America. 
they literally make it politically charged. They like, if there's a setting in the game that is set in Iraq, they change the enemies from the United States troops to Russian troops. Because of course we all need to love America and not say anything bad about it ever. Um, even certain characters in certain video games. I think there, that there was one season of, of the game where the main character was like a very red army pro USSR uh, kind of guy. And in the next season, he was changed to this anti-USSR, back to the status quo, like democracy, free markets, America is amazing type of character, which, you know, doesn't make sense principally, but also just like, it really shows that like, the government and the people in power will do absolutely anything, even alter video games, in order to shape the perceptions of people in their society and in order to garner more power and like more votes. So that's why I say intrinsically, um, you do not come up with centrist beliefs yourself. But the last thing I want to talk about is like the two dif different types of centrists, and you might identify yourself with one of these. And like, what, what, what's the, the bad impact here of being a centrist? So first of all, I feel like there's non-political centrists, right? The people who say, look, I don't really like politics. I don't, I don't find it interesting. And I do, I applaud that. I think a lot of politics is just a shit show. But um, you do have to understand that it is a privilege to be non-political. Because I feel like centrists, they only care about political issues when it affects them personally. Like, a lot of centrists in the Western world, uh, they don't care about people who are in more disadvantaged areas. They don't care about climate change until it really affects them. Then they sort of start voting and start caring about these issues. But like, moreover, as a centrist, I don't understand what is the, what is the benefit to society that you like bring as a centrist. You're literally like a slave to the status quo and like you support the oppression that we have in, in society right now. The world is like literally dying and you're just sitting there and you're like okay with it. Or you think that the status quo, like democracies and like space travel is the peak of human development. I think it's quite absurd and I don't think that this is the, the peak and like the progress that we should be reaching for as people who are living in this earth and who actually have like the ability to do any something, at least in our communities. Um, but especially the people who make me laugh are like the, the political activists who are young people. Because of course, uh, I, I was involved in many youth organizations and like I go to these events where people from youth organizations all around the world gather. And what's really funny to me is that these people are like, you know, the young generation, the generation with new fresh ideas, the people who should be changing the world or whatever. But they're like the most moderate people and <laughs> the biggest slaves of the status quo that I've seen. Many of them. And I don't understand. Like, you are you are the, the people who can actually push for some sort of change, if systemic change is even possible at this point. And you are so short-termist. You are so shallow in your views. And you're so moderate. I just don't understand what's the benefit. But the second type of centrist are the ones who are political, the centrists who are trying to like find some kind of compromise, the centrists who still like vote for a certain party. So like that's what, what I don't understand also. If you choose a certain party, either that be the far, uh, the, not the far, the center right or the center left, it is still an ideology, right? 
So you as a centrist still prioritize certain questions more in politics, and that's why you choose to vote for either a more right or a more left party. So once again, where is the centrist beliefs? I don't see a centrist ideology here. But also, I feel like a lot uh, uh, a more common opinion that centrists hold is like that being a centrist is just the normal choice and the only good choice in society because like that's just being a, a, a morally correct human. But once again, I don't understand why this is true because democracy and like free markets, it's not the norm. It's just something that we're used to in our society. Um, but all of these things are also a political ideology that have been pushed on us since we were born. I don't think that we should be so Eurocentric or centered on the West and believe that all of these things that are around us are just normal and accepted and shouldn't be critiqued. No, I think we as people should pick an ideology and should educate ourselves and should support what seems moral to us and, and always support the people who are less uh, privileged than us and thus pick a political side. So that's my take on centrism. <laughs> Jeez, just not pulling any punches, eh, Melda? Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. This this reminds me of a of a subreddit that I that I somehow ran into, which is enlightened centrism. Basically, it's 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 really funny. It's like um basically making fun of people that are like, oh, like it you know, the, the options are either Trump stole the election, Trump didn't steal the election, and they or like whatever, the election was stolen, election was not stolen. And they'd be like, well, I believe that the truth is somewhere in between the two. And half the votes were fraudulent and the other half were not. Like, I, I know what you're saying. But you know what? I, I, I can't lie that I'm a bit offended as someone that has been described by, I don't think I've described myself as a centrist, um, but by other people as a centrist. Because I don't believe that it's fundamentally anti-radical or anti or, 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 or pro-status quo. It, it, it can be. But, but to me, what centrism is, is, is heterodox political opinions, right? For example, myself, the reason I've been described as a centrist or a quote-unquote radical centrist is that I support strong social safety nets, uh, welfare state, things like that. But I'm also extremely capitalist in, in many ways, very pro-free trade, globalization, um, I've been called a neoliberal shill by a lot of people. Why uh, the reason what I find trapping about about ideology is that it, it hooks you to a doctrine. It's almost it's almost religious in a way. And I just simply refuse to believe that anyone has it 100 percent right. What do you think about that? I fully agree with you. And I do think that modern politics puts me puts us in frames, essentially in frames that we perhaps don't want to choose. Um, and I think I was also once like you, uh, you know, I had opinions from the right and from the left, but it came to a point where I saw, you know, where I really was, became more educated and like, I got friends which are of a certain political ideology. And I understood that all of my beliefs that were more on the right, I don't prioritize them as much or they're just false most of the time. And that's why, I don't know. I think it comes to a point where you might be centrist for some time, but it's still more efficient for you to pick some kind of side, you know, when you're voting or when you're right. pushing for change. 
That makes sense. So basically, all what you're saying is, although you may not agree with everything in one particular ideology, it is important to see what that particular ideology prioritizes as the most important and like politically align yourself strategically with them. Yeah, because even like what you say about social safety nets and, and like free markets, I don't really... Of course, maybe you see how those two can interact with each other. But I personally, I don't because I think that why we need like the the reason why we need so much social security and safety nets is because capitalism makes problems in society for people and in their financial situations. So that's why I feel like they both contradict each other and I don't support them both. Fair enough, Milda. I think we're we're, we're going to talk about this yeah. a lot in the future. So, Vishva, what are you ranting about this week? Today, I'm ranting about the importance of freedom of speech. In particular, I want to look at the case of Julian Assange, who is being prosecuted by the federal government for publishing leaks about their crimes in Iraq. Freedom of speech is the freedom that I value the most. And the reason that I value it the most is that it's the tool that citizens use to make their governments accountable to them. Without freedom of speech, you do not have the capacity to advocate for your other freedoms. Freedoms like knowing when your government is lying to you, spying on you, or committing war crimes in Iraq. Let me introduce you to Julian Assange. Julian Assange is an Australian national and is an extremely polarizing figure to most people in the world. He's most noted for um, being a sort of activist journalist type. He started a company called WikiLeaks in 2006, and the intention of WikiLeaks was basically to expose governments and powerful individuals that do a whole bunch of shady things. Uh, some of the first leaks that came out from uh, through WikiLeaks were whistleblowers, um, that included the standard operating procedure manual for Guantanamo Bay prison, which included instructions on how to avoid following the Geneva Conventions on Human Rights for Prisoners of War, and um, basically also releasing a list of all the members of a far-right uh, British Nationalist Party. Uh, essentially, the goal of WikiLeaks is for anonymous sources to come out without fear and expose shady things that governments and powerful people are doing. And, and the emphasis was on anonymity so that these people are protected. And the what Assange himself said is that he himself, as the founder and the creator and the manager of WikiLeaks, would have no idea what is being leaked. So one of the documents that was leaked to WikiLeaks were the Iraq war files and the Afghanistan war files. And within them, they contained some extremely disturbing things. Um, and those extremely disturbing things included things like torture. And I'll, I'll basically, I'll, I'll talk about what the contents of the video are later. But what they did to WikiLeaks and what they did to Assange is that when he leaked these documents, he effectively became a persona non grata in America. America's invasion of Iraq was repeatedly justified and covered up, and they tried to cover up a whole bunch of the war crimes that they were committing. And um, Assange basically took it upon himself to release information about that that challenged the official government narrative. And in his efforts doing so, 
he's being charged with the Espionage Act, which is one of the most powerful acts in America, like literally conceived of during the Second World War when there was like like a whole bunch of double agents and, and things like that. So Britain recently approved his extradition um, under the Espionage Act to America to face trial. And many people worry that this is basically America trying to teach him a lesson on never to, um, never to snitch on them. The most famous video that was contained within the Iraq War files was a video that he titled Collateral Murder, which is an extremely graphic um, video. And I'll, I'll leave out a lot of the, the more gory details, but essentially what it shows is an American attack helicopter intentionally violating internationally agreed upon rules of engagement and firing upon a group of Iraqi civilians, including two journalists that were working for the news company Reuters. Um, when these people are shot and injured, a van comes uh, around and rescues them, and this van is also fired upon, and those people also die. Uh, to me, it makes zero sense that Assange is being charged at all, because he did not actually leak the information or leak the Iraq war logs himself. It's not like he went into a State Department computer, hacked it, and put it out into the world. No, 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 no. That's not what he's being accused of at all. He was given access to these files by a former soldier named Chelsea Manning, who was court-martialed for doing these things and served her time. She was the soldier that actually engaged in leaking the war documents and giving them to WikiLeaks. Assange really had nothing to do with it. The, the problem here is that Assange as the publisher is being charged, not as the leaker, as the publisher. This is, this is unprecedented in the world. This is like going after Politico, which was the first news company that, that aired the story of the, the Supreme Court documents being leaked. This is like going after them for a crime that was committed by whoever leaked them. This is a really, really troubling precedent that's set because one of the most basic things about journalism is the freedom to report on information that you feel is important. And what I feel this is, is a crackdown by the US government on freedom of the press. The US government has literally chased this man around the world, making him hide in the Ecuador embassy for six years awaiting trial. And eventually in Britain, which extradited him to America. They've chased him around the entire world, not for the crime of leaking information, but for the crime of being a journalist and publishing the anonymous leaks that he was given by someone else. So what do I think that this means for um, journalism and freedom of speech in America? I think that his arrest and his, his pursuance in this avid, um, basically like way that the US government is pursuing him is to send a warning to the journalists in America, basically saying, hey, look, you come after us, you expose all the shady stuff that we've done and we will make your life a living hell. We will charge you with the Espionage Act. We will kick you out of our country, basically trying to scare any journalist off and any citizen off from basically engaging in the democratic process, doing their job and exposing the government for when they're doing things wrong. This is an absolute failure of the US government to protect one of their key tenets, which is a freedom of the, pre of, of the press 
and freedom of, of speech. This is literally enshrined in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. If Assange gets tried for this, this sets the precedent that citizens are now allowed to be tried, not for the crime of leaking information, but for publishing it. This is basically um, an attack against news organizations and or ordinary citizens from by saying, look, if you try and hold us accountable, if you publish things about us that are true and are extremely shady, we're going to come after you. I think that this is completely wrong in violation of liberal values that make America what it is. And I urge Biden and the Department of Justice to stop the prosecution of Assange and protect American freedom of speech. One of the key tenets of democracy is not just voting, often it gets simplified to just that, but it's engaging actively in the democratic process and always holding your government accountable. This is exactly what Julian Assange did. What he did was he published information that he was given that was classified and he made the American public aware of the crimes of their government. This is not something that deserves to be prosecuted. This is something that deserves to be commended. Free Julian Assange. Ooh. I was muted, but I was clapping and I was cheering. <laughs> um, yes, period. Like, I don't know how anyone can be on the side of the United States government in this story because I love what you said about keeping your government accountable in a democracy. I think that's why I call all of these Western countries quote unquote democracies. Because right. really, too many people blindly believe the government. But what I wanted to ask you really is, um, how is the United States government then justifying this whole situation and the prosecution of Julian Assange? And what are the citizens that are supporting the government side saying? Well, I mean, this is classic war propaganda here. They're calling Assange a traitor and, and whatnot and a foreign asset and things like that. And I mean, I, I will just have to say personally, I find Assange to be a personally unlikable person. Um, and they're using that fact to sort of basically distort American public perception about what he did. Look, freedom of speech isn't like about defending people that you like and find as great human beings. I don't think that Julian Assange is all that great of a person, but the crime that he's being accused of currently has nothing to do with his personal life, has nothing to do with his personal character or whatnot. No, it has to do with the fact that he published information that he was given. Like imagine if the New York Times aired the story and some, see, like you would expect them to air the story. This is, it's their job as journalists. And legally there's no distinction between what Julian Assange and WikiLeaks did and what the New York Times does every day. If you can't count on like talking to anonymous sources within the government, this is a massive problem. And I honestly think that a lot of this opposition to Assange is not grounded or legitimate at all. Like it's basically the US government trying to cover their like cover their backs, uh, to put it in a PG way, um, is to cover their backs and um, make sure that dissent and, and exposing their actions is, is crushed. And they're using Assange's personal unlikability and the the chest thumping patriotism of of um of the word traitor to justify this yeah i think this definitely shows the 
hypocrisy of the government. But maybe it's even good because I don't know about the the personality or the character of Julian. Maybe I don't know if it's worth it to talk about that, but it's pretty intriguing. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got some credible accusations of sexual assault and things like that. And he did um, have a history of promoting some weird conspiracy theories. And um, he he was he it was WikiLeaks that published that Hillary Clinton hacked emails. So a lot of Democrats don't like him anymore um, either. So I don't know. He's just a kind of weird dude. But I don't care. It's his right, and he should not be prosecuted for this. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so that is a wrap, you guys. I hope you took something away from this episode. Thank you so much to Ignas, who came up and shared his intellectual knowledge on all of the world's issues. And we hope to see you again. Yeah, that was a great conversation. And I just want to once again urge you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give our podcast a rating if you if you liked it. Um, follow us on our podcast and follow us on Instagram at Wake Up Call Podcast. It's uh, really important for us that we get those engagement numbers up um, and things like that. And we're super thankful for your support. Um, and we're out. Bye.